Good morning. Glad you're here today. It's good to see each of you. We're grateful for such a beautiful day. Thank you for your presence this morning. It's a beautiful day, and hopefully and prayerfully it'll be a beautiful day all day. Very grateful if you're visiting with us. Please know that we are extremely happy that you have come our way. We want to invite you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're so thankful for those who visit our services on a weekly basis. I do want to express appreciation to Jared for preaching in my absence last week. I appreciate so much Jared and all the great work that he does here. And uh, he's a very valuable person to the church here at Olive Branch, and we're grateful for all that he and Anna do on a regular basis and very thankful for them. We got back on Friday evening from Jamaica. We had about 23 people that traveled to Jamaica, and Roger Leonard and I had the opportunity to teach a group of preacher students from Kingston Monday through Thursday. We began class every day at 8.30. We finished at 4. We had a meeting every night, and so it was a busy week. And uh, very grateful for the opportunity to have traveled there safely. It's always good to be back and no place like America. Very grateful for America. And it really opens your eyes to go to a foreign country to see how truly blessed we are in this country. I was thinking just a minute ago about on Monday evening when we got done, I thought, you know, I'd like some ice cream. And so I stopped, we stopped at the grocery and I got some ice cream, I got a drink, and so I went to the counter, and uh, when she rang it up, a half a gallon of ice cream was like 11 or $12 our cost. And I said, you know, I really don't think I want that. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's the principle of the thing, I am not paying $10 for a half a gallon of ice cream. And so anyway, we're blessed, extremely blessed in this country. And, so thankful for it. I want to ask you if you would to turn to Hebrews chapter 4 with me. I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16 in our study today. And I want us to think about Jesus, our great high priest. In Hebrews chapter 8, the writer says the sum, the main point of what we have been saying is this, that we have such a great high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. That great high priest that we have is Jesus. The Hebrew writer said in chapter 4, verse 14, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And so as we think about the priesthood of Jesus and the fact that Jesus functions on our behalf. Really the question is, how does He do that? And what makes Him our great High Priest? I want to begin today by first of all thinking with you about the fact that our great High Priest is a superior priest. When I say that Jesus is a superior High Priest, I mean He is superior in every facet. He is superior first and foremost in His power. The writer tells us that Jesus, our great high priest, is our creator. 
You remember back in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer stresses the superiority of Jesus, the Son of God, to angelic beings. And down in verse 10, he would say, And you, O Lord, have laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. That's what John said in John chapter 1. He said, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so we're talking about Jesus, that He is superior in power. Everything that has been made was made by the hand of the Son of God. In Hebrews chapter 3 at verse 4, the writer said, Every house is built by some man, but he who built all things is God. That's Jesus. So not only is He superior in power because He is our Creator, but also because He is identified as our Redeemer. Back in Hebrews chapter 1 at verse 3, the writer said that Jesus has purged us from our sins. The Lord Jesus is the one who has paid the price for the sins of the human family. And as I think about the fact that Jesus functions as our Redeemer, the writer tells us in chapter 2 at verse 9 that Jesus tasted death for every man. And so we think about the redemptive work of God's only begotten Son, the fact that Jesus came to earth to, as He would say in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, to give His life as a ransom for the many. So our high priest is a superior priest. He is superior in power, but also He is superior in performance. If you look at the book of Hebrews, there are a couple of things that are pointed out. I think about there is a contrast in His sacrifice and there is a completeness in His sacrifice that was not so under the old dispensation, the Mosaic Law. We could go all the way back to the Law of, Mo or rather to the law of Moses and even beyond that to the patriarchal period. There were many, many sacrifices that were made. And yet none of those sacrifices in and of themselves, had the ability to save the human family. They were offered in anticipation of the coming of Christ. For example, in chapter 10, in verse 3, the Bible says, but in those sacrifices, there was a reminder every year. In verse 4, he would say, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So you think about the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus in that same context in chapter 10. The writer would say, every priest stands ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So all of those Old Testament sacrifices that were offered annually, that were offered regularly, were not sufficient to resolve the problem of sin on behalf of the human family. And yet, the beauty of the priesthood of Christ, Jesus was not just the sacrifice, but He was the one who made that sacrifice, wasn't He? 
The Lord Jesus Christ willingly gave Himself on Calvary for our sins. Again, the writer in Hebrews said in chapter 2, verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. The writer tells us in chapter 7, verse 25, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, seeing He ever lives to make intercession for us, who needs not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for His own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this He did once when He offered up Himself. So we're talking about the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now there's a second thing I want you to see in our study. First we say, we note the fact, our high priest is a superior priest. But secondly, our high priest is sympathetic to our pain. Our high priest is sympathetic to our pain. The writer tells us first and foremost that he sees our pathway in life. Think about that for a minute. The writer tells us something about our visibility before the Lord. Listen to him in verse 13. He said, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. The high priest that we serve, he sees all, he knows all, doesn't he? Nothing is hidden from his sight. He understands, he knows everything that we face in life, doesn't he? Solomon wrote many years ago, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And so I think about the fact that everything that we do is visible before Him. Not only does the writer stress our visibility before the Lord, but he also talks about our accountability to the Lord. Listen again, verse 13. No creature is hidden from His sight. All things are naked and open before the eyes of Him with, with whom we must give an account. The writer here stressing the fact that we are accountable to the Lord, aren't we? I mean, after all, think about it. He sees everything. He knows everything. And didn't the writer say in chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment? Again, stressing our accountability to the Lord. As Paul would say, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us must give an account of himself to God to think that whatever you say, whatever you do, how you live, all of that will one day accompany you to the judgment seat of Christ. One day we're going to stand before the Lord. Today He functions on our behalf. He is our Savior. He is functioning as our high priest. But one day He'll be our judge, won't He? We'll give an account of the deeds done in the body, as Paul would say. He said, according to what we've done, whether good or bad. And so, our great high priest sees our path in life. But he also sympathizes with our pain in life. Listen, if you would, to what the writer said in verse 15. 
He said, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. The word sympathize here means to be affected with the same feelings as of another. To feel for, as we would say, to have compassion for. Do you think the Lord understands what you're facing in life? Do you think that Jesus serving as our high priest has some sense of what you're going through on a daily basis here on planet Earth? Do you think that? Do you think Jesus can identify with your plight? How many times have you heard people say about us? You just don't understand. You have no idea what I'm going through. Sometimes that's what people think when it comes to God. You'll hear people say, you know what? He just doesn't understand. The Lord understands, doesn't He? That's what the writer is saying. That the Lord Jesus has the ability to feel what you're feeling in life. He has the ability to understand, to comprehend the things that you're facing in this life. So you ask the question, well, how so? How does the high priest that we have, how does he somehow have that ability to grasp what I'm experiencing in life? Could I suggest to you that the Lord Jesus, He knows what it's like to be hungry in life. Do you know that there are people in the world today that are not blessed as we are when it comes to the amount of food that they have on the table? The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And Matthew says, and afterward, he was hungry. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry in life, doesn't he? Not only does Jesus understand about hunger, the Bible says that Jesus knows what it's like to be weary in life, to be tired. To reach the point of exhaustion where you are, as we say sometimes, frazzled, out of gas, can't go another, can't go another step. In John chapter 4, Jesus had been traveling from Judea to Samaria. It was noontime, and the Bible says Jesus was weary. Some of us, we know what it's like to be weary and tired and exhausted. We get it. We know what it means to be, to be hurting from laboring to the point of exhaustion day in and day out. Jesus has been there. And let me tell you what, sometimes the pain and the trials of life can weary you. Do you remember in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer makes that great push, that exhortation, to run with patience the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He said, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. He despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. He said, consider Him that endured such hostility from sinners. Why? Why? lest you become weary and discouraged 
in your souls. Have you ever known somebody that has been discouraged and wearied by life? There are people like that out there, and you may be one of them. Maybe you're weary and tired from battling disease, from battling illness. Maybe the daily grind has worked on you day in and day out, and you're just tired. I think about people that have grown older in life, and their body is not what it once was. They don't have that spiritual strength, or rather they don't have that physical strength and stamina that they once had. And sometimes you'll hear them say, you know what, I'm just tired. I'm ready to go on. Jesus was, he was hungry. He knew something about being weary, according to John 4, verse 7. The Bible says he also knew something about thirst, didn't he? Remember what he said? To the woman at the well, I thirst. Or rather, give me a drink of water. On the cross, one of the things that Jesus said, I thirst. The Lord knew something about being parched with a dry mouth. And then, did you know that the Lord Jesus knows something about rejection? You ever been rejected in life? You know, there are, there are occasions when a spouse will reject their wife or a spouse will reject their husband. Let me tell you what, that can hurt you deeply, can it? There have been children that have rejected their parents and they'll say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Never mind the fact that you cared for me, you sought to the best of your ability to provide for me day in and day out. They reject them. Sometimes they're ashamed of them, aren't they? And yet, the Lord Jesus knows something about being rejected. As a matter of fact, Isaiah, seven centuries before Jesus came to earth, do you know what he said about Jesus? He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows unacquainted with grief. And he said, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. In John chapter 6, Jesus has been telling a multitude of people, look, I'm the bread of life. I am that living bread that came down from heaven. And John tells us that those who were present on that occasion, their response to what Jesus had taught them, they said, this is a hard saying. This is a difficult saying. Who can it? Who can accept it? Who can understand it? And so John says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And Jesus asked this question, will you also go away? Does Jesus know what it's like to be rejected by people that had at one time claimed to be his followers? Yes, he does. When you're rejected and hurting, when somebody has betrayed your trust, your confidence, when somebody has turned their back on you, when somebody who said at one time, you know what, I'm your ally, I'll stand by you, come what may, and then when push comes to shove, they're no longer around, guess what? That's rejection, isn't it? Do you remember Paul in 2 Timothy? He's writing to Timothy and he said, you know what, I'm about to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. 
Paul knew death was imminent. He would die at the hands of Nero Caesar. So he says on one occasion, looking back retrospectively, he said, at my first defense, all men forsook me. No one stood with him, did they? It was said of Jesus, it was said of Jesus prior to going to the cross, His disciples forsook Him and fled. When you are rejected, it can cut you to your core, can it? Jesus knows something about that. And so the writer here is saying, look, we have a high priest who is in heaven. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be weary, to be thirsty, to be rejected. And let me, let me say this. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. We've lost a lot of people that are precious to us through the years. Good people. People that we have spent a lot of time with. We've had the opportunity to eat together. We've had the opportunity to, to do a lot of things. And yet they're no longer here, are they? They're gone. Jesus knows something about the death of a loved one. In John chapter 11, word came to Jesus that Lazarus, someone that he loved deeply. Lazarus was a friend. And yet in verse 14, the text tells us that Lazarus died. Is there anything worse than losing somebody that you love dearly? I know rejection's tough. And I know that there are a lot of things that happen day in and day out that can be tough to deal with. But to bury somebody that you love. Some of us here today, we know what it's like to bury a spouse, don't we? Some of us here today know what it's like to bury a sibling, a grandchild. And let me say this, there are times when words are not adequate, aren't they? You know, there have been times when, quite frankly, there's nothing that can be said. I remember, I remember several years ago, and I know Wendy and Lane are here, but I was just thinking about when Eddie called me early one Friday morning and said that Andrew had been killed. So we went down to see Eddie, and Wendy was there. Eddie was a great business person. And I remember he said to me, he said, I have worked and built all of this. And then here's what he said. What now? What now? Does God understand when we lose a child? Yes, He does. God lost a son, didn't He, to death? 
Jesus understands, doesn't he? Not only does the Lord know something about losing a loved one, let me tell you this, he knows something about tasting death. Again, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Jesus tasted death for every man. In Hebrews chapter 2, the Bible tells us, speaks of those who through fear of death all their lifetime lived in bondage. When I was just a kid, I remember I couldn't have been more than eight, maybe nine. I remember being in the kitchen and my mother told me that my grandmother's sister was about to die or was dying. And she said, they have called the preacher to go to the hospital. And I remember as just, a, just, as, just as a boy thinking and asking the question, why did they call the preacher? And my mom said, because sometimes death can be frightening. Why is that? Well, because we've never died, have we? You and I have never walked the corridor of death. We don't know what it's like to taste death, but Jesus does. And the Bible tells us in chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus destroyed him who has the power of death, that is the devil. Through the eye of faith, we can walk that corridor knowing, as David did, that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord said what? I'll be with you. The Lord will make that journey with us. And so when we come to the end of the road here on planet Earth, look, we don't have to come to the end of the road alone, do we? We have the opportunity to pour out our heart to God, to talk to Him about our fears, our struggles. When the Apostle Paul wrote that second and final letter, Paul wrote maybe 13 of our epistles in the New Testament. And Paul said, let me tell you what, Timothy, I'm about to leave this world. He said, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. And he said, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Do you think the Apostle Paul was worried about death? Do you think he was wondering in his heart of hearts, you know what, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Do you think it was a hope so think so, maybe so attitude. Let me tell you what, the Apostle Paul was confident when he came to the end of the road, Paul could say, look, I know, I have no doubt in my mind there's a crown of righteousness waiting on me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, we know, we know that if this body, this temporal tabernacle of flesh be destroyed. He said, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands. And he said, it is eternal in heaven. That's confidence, isn't it? So the Lord Jesus Christ, he has the ability as our great high priest to sympathize, to feel with us, whatever it may be. Now, there's a third thing I want to share with you in our study. Not only 
Do we have a great high priest who is a superior priest? Not only does he have the ability to sympathize with our pain, but he can support us with our problems. Look at verse 16. First, there is an exhortation. The writer said, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. The writer here is saying, look, you are a child of God. You have all these great spiritual blessings as an arsenal of defense. And he's saying, what you need to understand first, you need to understand something about the privilege of prayer, don't you? Because he's saying as God's people, we have the right to come boldly before the throne of God's grace. Didn't Peter say long ago, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous? And his prayers are, or rather his ears are open to their prayers. We have the right, the privilege of prayer. Jesus would say on one occasion that men ought to always pray and not faint or grow weary. And we talked about Jesus understanding something about being weary and the dangers of discouragement. So I think about the privilege of prayer, but then also the power of prayer. When we go before the throne of grace, do you know whose presence we are standing before? We're in the presence of God. We are in the presence of the creator of the universe, are we not? And to think that there is a God in heaven who would invite me into His throne room, that He would invite me to come before His throne and to lay before Him my wants, my wishes, my needs, my hurts, my sorrows, my disappointments, my fears. Is there power in prayer? Do you believe in the power of prayer? Didn't James say the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man Avails much? Does prayer work? Yes, it does. And you think about, we're going before the throne of grace. The Lord Jesus serves on our behalf as our mediator. He is our intercessor. He is our advocate. The Lord Jesus is constantly working on our behalf, isn't He? And we are, we are coming before the throne of Almighty God. Go back and look at the life of Jesus. And note how often He spent time in prayer. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Jesus rose early one morning, went out to a solitary place, and there the Bible says He prayed to God. Luke chapter 6, before He selected the apostles. Do you know what the Lord did? He spent the night in prayer. In chapter 5, He withdrew to the wilderness for the purpose of praying Prayer was regular in the life of Jesus. Why? He understood something about the privilege of prayer, the power of prayer. If the Lord Jesus knew something about prayer, then don't you think as His people we ought to spend some time in prayer? So there is this exhortation, but then secondly, there is an expectation. When we come boldly before the throne of grace, do we have the right to expect something? Let me answer that. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. I want you to listen again to what the writer said. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. 
And the word boldly here carries with it the idea of coming before the throne of God and speaking in a manner that would be very frank. Fearless confidence. In other words, we have the right to go before the throne of God and to really speak our mind. To let the Lord know exactly what we're feeling and how we feel. And to lay before Him. To just lay it out. Lord, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I need. This is how I'm hurting. Let me just say this. We have the assurance the Lord hears us, doesn't He? The writer said that we are to come before the throne of grace boldly. Does God hear our prayers? Didn't John say this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, listen to Him, He hears us. There is a God in heaven who will hear our prayers. And we are coming before the throne of God. We have this great high priest who is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's God the Father. And the Lord Jesus is at His right hand. And we are going before that throne and we have the assurance that He is hearing us. But not only can we expect Him to hear us, we can have the assurance that He will, listen, help us. When we go before the throne of God, we are going before Him with some intrinsic need. And we're saying, Lord, I have needs. I have wants. I have desires. I'm struggling. I'm hurting. I'm sorrowing. Whatever it may be. And listen, if you would, to what the writer said with regard to this expectation. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, active pity, and find grace to help, and listen to what he says here, and find grace to help in time of need. Are there times in life when you have needs? I mean, when you have real needs in life. We're human, aren't we? We have feet of clay. We all have needs, don't we? Doesn't matter who we are. Doesn't matter where we live, doesn't matter how much money we make, doesn't matter, doesn't matter about a lot of things. We all have needs. I want you to know the rich have some of the same needs that the poor have. Young people have some of the same needs that older people have. We all have needs. And yet the writer here is saying, look, when we go before that throne, we can expect God to grant us a measure of grace. Grace being someone doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. And the writer here is saying, look, there are times in your life when you have needs. And when you go before the throne of God and you lay before Him your needs and your wants, you can expect grace and mercy. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? when he talked about the abundance of revelations that had been granted unto him. And he said, because of the abundance of revelations there had been given unto him, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And he said, let me tell you what, I asked the Lord three times to remove it. And you know what the Lord said? My grace is sufficient for you. 
When it's all said and done, you know what the Lord's saying to us? My grace is sufficient to you. We have a great high priest who will support or sustain us in the problems of life. I like what David said many years ago when David had, had some idea of what it meant to be in need. And David said many years ago, cast your burden on the Lord. And do you know what he'll do? David said, he will sustain you. That's what he said in Psalm 55, verse 22. Peter would say, cast all your care on him. Why? Because he cares for you. I want to close today by saying to all of us, we have a great high priest. And he is in heaven. And he is working on our behalf. And because of that, we're blessed people. If you're a child of God, you're blessed, aren't you? You're blessed. Blessed above the rest. If you're here today, and let's just say that you're a Christian and you're hurting and struggling, and maybe for whatever reason you have forgotten that you have a great high priest who is there for you, and you need us to pray with you and for you, maybe because of sin in your life, maybe because of some other problem you're facing, look, we have that right, that privilege, we'd be happy to do that with you and for you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you're tired of living day in and day out without God's blessings, and you want to be a blessed person, and you want to enjoy all of the blessings that are found in Christ, today's the day, isn't it? I mean, why not? You know, Paul said, today is the day of salvation. What would you need to do? Believe Jesus to be the Son of God? Repent of your sins, just like they did on Pentecost Day, Acts 2? Confess His name before others, and then be immersed in water. And the assurance is, all your sins will be washed away. Acts twenty two sixteen. Whatever need you may have today, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.